God bless America. I have good news for you. The Reeves Across America caravan is on its way to Arlington National Cemetery. We just gave it its official kickoff, and that was a, that's a highlight. It really is a highlight. It's one of the most exciting things that I uh, am involved in all year long. And uh, what a wonderful, wonderful turnout we had. Weather was great, and uh, it was a sight to behold. Uh, I'm thinking the drone that was taking pictures really got some good shots this morning. And uh, so, wonderful. Uh, excuse me if I'm if I breathe during my message. I don't usually. I usually take a half hour and breathe before I preach, but I didn't have time this morning, so I'll have to breathe while I'm preaching. See, you've already beat me to it and stop breathing. <laughs> so. Today's scripture is going to come from the book of Lamentations. I'm sure you did your morning devotions there today. And if you don't know where that is, that's two of us because I don't know either. It's about page 1300 and something in my Bible, and it's probably in that area. If you're on your Bible app, uh, it starts with L. And we're going to take it from the first verse of the first chapter of Lamentations. I'm going to uh, explain a little bit of that to you as we go along. But I'm going to spend the morning uh, telling you some very interesting stories and I think some things that will uh, both be surprising to you and hopefully inspirational to you as well as we move on in this series entitled Caring. Uh, for now at least, I think this is going to be the wrap-up of that series. Uh, not to say that we're going to stop caring, but we're going to stop teaching about it and start doing it. The very first message or first installment of this series uh, was entitled, Who Really Cares? And we were looking into this whole idea of caring and, and who does care and, and how do people care. And then the second, um, the second part of this uh, I entitled, Does No One Care? And um, sometimes you get into things in life where you really ask that yourself that question, is there, is there anybody at all who cares about anything, uh, particularly about what I might be going through? And then we made it personal in the last message, uh, message number three, and I entitled it, So Do I Care? And I tried to bring it down to where you and I live and hopefully drove it into your yard so that you could deal with it and that you could think about this over the next 10, 12 days. And I hope you have at least once or twice thought about that subject, Do I Care? Um, I want to center, to start with at least, I want to center what I have to say as an opener around a city that you may have heard of. It's a city by the name of Jerusalem. Jerusalem means a place of peace. And um, how many have ever heard of Jerusalem? Oh, I'm amazed. How many have heard of Jerusalem in the last seven days? It's a great city, and it's back in the news. I, I just want to tell you something right up front. It's been in the news for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's nothing new. 
And how many of you knew that it's back in the news and very prominent right now? And the leader of our nation just made a phenomenal decision and a timely decision, which every American should be proud of. We, if we don't stand with Israel, we don't stand. And if we call ourselves born-again believers and we believe in this book and every bit of it from cover to cover, not just the New Testament, but the entire scope of it, and we don't stand with Jerusalem and stand with Israel, something's terribly wrong with our testimony. So what I want to do here for a moment or two is go back in time, and we're staying on this theme of caring, okay? But I want to go back in time before most of you could remember, about 2,600 years ago. I've had a morning already, folks. I can't do it this way. We've got to be with it. A time when some of you probably don't remember. About 2,600 years ago, 2,600 years ago. So obviously some of you do remember, and that's going to be even better, because I can go to you and say, well, what was it like then? I want you to hear the cry of the prophet. Of course, the book of Lamentations is the cry of Jeremiah. By the way, as I open it to chapter 1, that's the first of five lamentations. And you say, man, that, that, that's a lot of lamenting. Oh, really? How many times have you lamented in the last week? Yeah. We lament over this, and we lament over that, and we lament over something else, all mostly inconsequential things, but we make a big deal of it. So Jeremiah has a heartfelt issue here something that goes down deep, right to his core. And he's crying out, and this is the first lamentation, as he looks over the great city of Jerusalem. I don't know if you've seen in, um, in the recent days uh, news photos or, and, and videos of the city of Jerusalem. A lot of the newscasts, you know, they'll show that in the background while the reporter is speaking and so on. And it's a, it's a beautiful place, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's just an unbelievable center uh, of, of the Jewish faith and of the, of the nation of Israel. He's looking at the city of Jerusalem. So here he is in Lamentations chapter 1 and in verse 1, and he says, and I'm, I think we have this for the screen. Yeah. He said, how deserted lies the city. That's Jerusalem. Once so full of people, how like a widow is she who once was great among the nations? He's lamenting here something that really touched his heart. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. And then if you drop down, if you're following along, and I appreciate if you can, down to verse 8, you see, Jerusalem has sinned greatly, and Jerusalem has become unclean, and all who honored her despise her, for they've all seen her naked, and she herself groans and turns away. Those are lamenting words. And if you still have your eyes somewhere near that scripture, could you further just go down, and we'll pick it up at verse 11. Read verse 11 and part of 12. All her people groan as they search for bread. Now there's quite a contrast here from verse 1 down to verse 11. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive 
Things are not good in Jerusalem. Look, O Lord, and consider. Jeremiah is crying out. For I am despised. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look around and see. Jerusalem had once been a very great and a, and a very crowded city. It indeed was a testimony to the world of the power and the glory of God. In it stood that glorious temple that Solomon had built. And inside its walls, families had lived and children had played and love had been shared and memories had been made. And it had been a city of peace and prosperity. It was a symbol of greatness to the known world. And God showered his blessings upon the people. God had showered his blessings upon that great city to the point where people all over the kingdom and beyond knew of the greatness of Jerusalem. But in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed. And the scene in this first chapter of the Lamentations is a scene of destruction. Now the walls of the city and the homes in which those families had lived, most of them, had all been reduced to rubble. And mixed with the stones were the broken knickknacks and the toys and the, the things that people use for their enjoyment in their homes. That was all there, just a pile of rubble. And I don't like to use modern day illustrations. I can't really illustrate this, but how many of you have seen the utter destruction in Southern California over the last week? If you're, you can watch that and not feel brokenness in your own heart and feel so bad for those thousands and thousands and thousands of people who've been displaced, those hundreds and hundreds of homes now into the thousands that are nothing but just little piles of ashes now you would get a picture of what Jeremiah was looking at as he surveyed the city of Jerusalem or what was the great city. So as he watched, he saw people passing by the ruins. I, um, I, I, I watch, we, we like to watch all the old footage. I say we like to, but from historical perspective and because my family was involved in the military, but uh, we like to watch some of the documentaries on, on some of the Second World War things that happened and the actual footage that came out of that. And you, you take a place like, for instance, uh, when, when, when Berlin fell, and, and it was just nothing but, but piles of concrete and, and little bits of this and that. There were, there were, and, and yet the video or the, the film then showed, you know, it showed like two people walking down the road or, or three people or one person in this whole vast area. That's all you could see. And, and what a, a picture of destruction. I'm not, I'm not good at setting those kind of scenes for you. But that was the scene that Jeremiah took in because Jerusalem had been destroyed. And as he watched, he saw people passing by the ruins and he was appalled at their reaction. I think there are two lamentations in the verses we read together. I think the first lamentation was the broken heart over Jerusalem. I think the second lamentation was the fact that people were passing by practically not even noticing. They weren't crying. They weren't laughing. They weren't 
They weren't reacting. They simply walked on by, showing no emotion, no concern at all, just walking by. And Jeremiah looks at them, and here's what he cries. He said, is it nothing to you, all who pass by? He's looking at these people thinking they are totally, absolutely insensitive to all that's happened. And I look at that picture, and I thought of that lamentation scene, and I think, wow, that is insensitive. These people are not gathering together to recoup and to, 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 to reorganize and to put things back into proper perspective. They're not crying. They're not with Jeremiah, like, come and, and lament with us and be sorrowful with us. And, and when you think of that, you, you think, wow, are they totally insensitive? And then it hits me. Then it hits me, this question, which haunts me, actually. And so I want it to haunt you, so I'm going to ask you this question. They seem insensitive, don't they? So let me ask you this question. How sensitive are we? Just how sensitive are we? So to find out, maybe we need to take a test. Not an IQ test, because all, you'd all just ace that. I'm not worried about that. But an SQ test, a sensitivity quotient test. How sensitive are we today? For example, how do you react when you hear about thousands of men, women, and children being, there's no other word for it, slaughtered in some of the countries of the world today, the Sudan, Afghanistan, North Korea, just to name a few, but there are many. I mean, when you hear of that, is that just news and oh-hum, poor people, glad I don't live there? Or does it bother you to hear that a third of the world's population will go to bed hungry tonight? And many millions are dying of starvation, and you and I are sitting here now and saying, hey, only an hour and we go to lunch. And I have a proposition for you. It's an important point that I want to make. And in this message this morning, it's my goal to make this point. And I hope you'll listen carefully. And I hope you'll remember it. And I hope you'll apply it. Here's my point. If we are children of God, if we claim to follow Jesus, then we have no choice. We must be loving and caring Christians. And so that's the, what I'm giving as a title for part four to try to wrap this caring series together. Loving and caring. Now, I want to present a clear contrast for you, and so I've got to start on one end of the spectrum here. And so if you're notating... Part one says there are many people in the world who are uncaring. They're just simply uncaring. Think about what I just said. There are many people in the world who are just uncaring. And I hope when I said that, you're not sitting there and saying, well, who cares? <laughs> I don't care. That's a conclusion that we have to come to if we're going to deal with this subject. 
that there are many people in the world who are uncaring, period. I don't know if you remember the story. It's quite a few years ago now, but it was a very prominent story at the time. It was all over the news about a woman who drowned in Lake Michigan. She wasn't really that far from shore, but she was in real trouble. And as she was drowning, she cried for help. And as the story is related, there were three able-bodied men standing on the shore who heard her cries, but stood there and watched that woman drown. Someone called the rescue squad, and when they drug or dragged her lifeless body out of Lake Michigan, they asked those three men this question, why in the world didn't you help her? Their response was revealing, and don't judge when you hear it, because I feel when we judge somebody in a situation like this, we're probably judging ourselves. Here was their answer. They all said, we didn't go in because the water was too cold. Now, probably most, if not all of us here today, have heard stories, and even recently, about people, and, and you hear it oftentimes now, somebody being brutally attacked right out in broad daylight. And, and, and they're, they're in a public area and they're left there either dead or dying in that place with people actually stepping around them and over them to go on about their duties and their business and whatever. This is more common now than it is uncommon. Yeah, those people were witnesses. In fact, some were probably taking pictures of it because, you know, that cell phone has a myriad of uses. But no one tried to help. And no one used that phone to call 911. Just go around that way or just step over and just keep going. So the question is not how sensitive are we to the needs of others. That's not really the question I'm drilling down to. Here's the question I want us to consider. Why are we so insensitive? Why are there so many people who really don't seem to care about anything at all about what happens or what happens to others? Well, I think there are two possible answers. I don't want to leave you hanging here. I think there are two possible answers, and I hope that this will fill in some blanks for you. And I want to tell you stories to back these up. You may have heard the name Dr. Viktor Frankl. He was an Austrian Jew who was a, became a prisoner of the Nazis during World War II. And if you ever get a chance to read uh, a, a book, especially his autobiography, I, I recommend that. He wrote about his POW camp experiences, and he was in a number of them, uh, Dachau and, and Auschwitz and, and the worst of the worst. And in his book, he tells about the emotional stages that a prisoner goes through during captivity. He wrote that the final and most awful stage of all is one where the prisoner actually ends up murdering his own emotions. Only once or twice in my lifetime have I had a chance 
to talk to my uncle, my dad's brother, who spent 33 months in a German POW camp, actually made it out alive and lived to the age of 92, and I've seen a few pictures that he had sent home from the camp. I have copies of letters that went to him or that came from the camp, but very little did he talk about. Here's why. Because when they're in a situation like that and they get to a certain stage, as Frankel said, the prisoner actually ends up murdering his own emotions. He can't take what's going on any longer and he has to learn how to block it out. Because, Viktor Frankl says, and I quote, you can only view human suffering so long. If you are sensitive, if you are compassionate, then it hurts. So finally, when you have seen so much suffering, you kill your own emotions. The result is that you can watch your friend being knocked down and picked up and knocked down again and never look the other way and never feel anything. End of quote. Indifference and uncaring become a defense mechanism that we use to shield ourselves because we don't want the hurt anymore. It hurts to look at that stuff. It hurts to watch that stuff. Turn that off. I don't want to see that on the news. Isn't there any good news? Now, how well would that sell? But people murder their own emotions because they don't want the hurt anymore. Nor do they want the guilt of feeling like, well, I should have done something, or if there was anything I could do, I should do, or maybe I ought to just turn that off right now and pray for the people in that situation. So it becomes a defense mechanism that we use to shield ourselves because we don't want to hurt anymore. Hopefully you're not at that point in your life, but if you ever get there, try to keep Viktor Frankl's words in your mind. Maybe our all-pervading coverage of the news of the world, has, I don't know, maybe it's done it to us. Maybe that's hardened us. Maybe that has caused us to be professional uh, evaders and avoiders. Like we can hear it, but we don't really, it doesn't really change anything. It doesn't really invoke anything as far as reaction with our emotions. It just kind of, yeah, it's awful. Mm, it's terrible, yeah, and, and, and we just hear this stuff over and over and over again. Today, every time you pick up a newspaper or every time you turn on a television, you hear of more and more and more and more human suffering. And here's why, because there's more and more and more human suffering in our world today. And a lot of it could be, could be because of the insensitivity and the uncaring attitude of people who should be sensitive and should be more caring. It's really out there, isn't it? Maybe we've heard too much. Maybe we've tried to deflect these things too much. Maybe we've cried all the tears that we can cry. Maybe we felt all the sympathy that we can feel until finally, Frankel says, we've murdered our own emotions. 
And now, just, just put yourself in this place for a moment and pretend you're, you're watching the evening news or, or some newscast or you're listening to something as you drive along. You can sit there and you can look at it all. And, of course, now they've got to blare those pictures. And while they're talking about it, they're just blaring the worst part of it over and over and over. And I keep saying, why do you have to show that 40 times on this one little news clip that's going to last like three and a half to four minutes? Because that's getting into our brain. It's getting into our into our uh, emotions, and finally, as we sit there looking at it, we get to a point where the brain shuts that off, and we don't even shed a tear, and we don't even show emotion, and the truth is we don't even know how to act if we wanted to act. We're almost addicted to insensitivity. We try to keep everything at arm's length because we think maybe that's the safe place to be. Don't want to talk about it. Don't want to see it. Turn that off. Don't want to listen. Blah, blah, blah. See, if that happens, then I don't have to believe that it's happening in the world. And I don't have to take responsibility. And I don't have to reach out to anybody that's hurting. And if you're laying on the sidewalk while I walk down the street, I'm just going to step over you. Because I've chosen to murder my emotions and I see something there, but I don't really see the grossness and the terror and the awful sight that's before me. Maybe that's the safe place to live. Place where we can't possibly hurt anymore. When you see people doing things that bring heartache and trouble and grief and just downright hurt to other people. They, they seem to even enjoy doing it. They seem to not give it a thought, just, just moving on their merry way. They, it's almost like, I don't care who I hurt. It doesn't matter the, the trail of carnage that I leave. I'm just, you know. I preached a message a few years back entitled, Hurt People, Hurt People. And this is my fear, is that when we get to a point where we're taking in and absorbing all this hurt and trying to play stoic and we can make it and God, I'm praying, we'll get through this, that, that doesn't work. That's not real. We've got to also deal with our emotions. We've also got to deal with what's really happening, what's getting through the skin. Because when we're hurt like that, it won't be long before we hurt someone else, because hurt people hurt people. The second reason I think people are so insensitive many, in many cases today is because, listen to this, it is because it costs something to be sensitive. It costs something when you dare to care. I'll give you a prime example, prime biblical example. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus told this story, Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25, of the man who was traveling, was overtaken by thieves and robbers, left to die on the road. Two men, upstanding characters in the community, people of stature, 
people of integrity, we thought, and they just pass by this guy on the other side. So when this happens in today's world, don't think this is a new phenomenon. Just go back and read Luke chapter 10. So these two men, either one, particularly both, should have stopped to help this man and didn't. And then came a Samaritan who shouldn't even been on that stretch of road, let alone stop to see who was injured, let alone do something about it. You see, the first two had appointments, and they had to get there. They had just as much money, probably more, in their pockets after they saw the man bleeding and nearly dead, dead as they had before, and they went on their way. It didn't cost them anything. It didn't cost them any time. It didn't cost them any money. It didn't cost them any grief. But the Samaritan who dared to stop And I say dared because if you know the background of the Samaritans living in that area, the the half-breed people, i got to tell you, it's like the woman at the well that Jesus stopped and talked to, the Samaritan woman. I mean, that number one, that woman being outside at noon hour in the middle of the day, being in a public place, talking to a man, all those were against all of the social norms of the day. So here's the, here's the Samaritan on his way stopping to help this man. It cost him a great deal. It cost him time. It cost him possessions because he gave up his oil and his wine to bind up the man's wounds. It cost him money because he paid the innkeeper to care for the man until he was well again. And he was late for his next appointment, whatever that was. And probably he was ridiculed because of what he'd done. I don't doubt that at all. Isn't it funny? He's the only one in the whole story that has another little adjective attached to his name. He's not just the Samaritan, and you don't know him as a Samaritan. What do you know him as? My Bible said there is none good, no, not one. Ah, but there is one. Why? Because he dared to care. Why? Because he overcame his insensitivity, if he had any. Why? Because he was willing to pay whatever it took to help somebody else in need. And he still to this day, even people don't have a clue of the Bible. They wouldn't know anything from one cover to the other. But they still know the term, be a good Samaritan. Isn't it interesting how God... How, how God preserves certain things down through the annals of history. The good Samaritan. See, it always costs something when you dare to care. Did I say that before? Did I say that before? Am I going to say it again? It always costs something when you dare to care. So if you're not interested in spending anything, whether it's money, time, energy, possession, agendas, whatever it is, you're not probably interested at all in what I'm talking about. But I know you are. So often... Church, so often, by the way, this is a message to Christians, if you hadn't figured it out. 
So often we would rather judge than care. Why? Anybody? It's easier. Doesn't cost anything. And of course, we know everything, particularly all the facts. So why wouldn't we be the judge? Why wouldn't we? Remember this statement. If you judge people, you have no time to love them. That came from a woman who gave her love and her life for the down and out, the downtrodden, those who had no hope, those who were dying, those who were maggot-infested, lying in the gutter. She would pick those people up out of the gutter, maggots and all, and take them to the nearest medical facility, and they would close the door in her face and say, we don't deal with people like that. And she would take them back to her, her place, and she would minister them either back to health or care for them in their dying hour. She said, if you're going to spend your time judging people, you'll have no time to love them. Hello, church. Hello, Christians. I know none of you are guilty, but I'm just preaching this for my own benefit. So you'll just have to sit and listen. I don't know if anybody here has heard. I'm, I'm sure there are some who have heard of Dawson Trotman. Anybody know Dawson Trotman? Know that name? Dawson Trotman died. You may not know this, and if you do, it's worth repeating it. It's a phenomenal story. He died in 1956 as a fairly young man. Some of you may have heard of him. You said, that's great. He was the founder of the Navigators. And that's a great evangelistic program, still very much thriving today. He was a true evangelist himself. Wonderful man, a, a man of boundless energy and conviction. He was convinced that the hope of the church was that older Christians, and not necessarily older by age, but those who've been on the journey for a while, should take younger Christians, those who haven't been on the journey for so long, just take them under their wings and teach them and mentor them and bring them along in much the same way or under the same manner or by the same example as Jesus did with his own disciples. There's so many things that went on in the life of Jesus that we just kind of don't, I don't mean, I don't think we ignore it on purpose, but we just don't seem to catch it. We just don't seem to see it. And Jesus spent those three years of ministry just, just pouring himself into his disciples. Thank God he did. <laughs> Thank God he did. Dustin Trotman died tragically. Did you know that? He died from drowning. He was an expert swimmer and in top physical condition. Here's the story. Two girls were drowning in a lake, and Dawson Trotman dove in to try to help them. His idea wasn't to try to help them. He was going to save them. He was able to rescue one and brought her safely out of the water. Then he dove back into the murky water, searching for the second girl. But he never surfaced. Finally, they dragged the bottom of the lake and found both of those two bodies. The girl's body and Dawson Trotman's body. 
That whole story was written up in Time magazine. Of his death, Time magazine said this, and I quote, Dawson Trotman was always lifting somebody else up. If you had nothing else said in your eulogy, one sentence, wouldn't that suffice? Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be an eternal legacy? Doesn't Trotman was always lifting somebody else up? Let me tell you this. If you're always putting people down, you're not ever going to lift anybody up. And if you think you can get to the top by walking on other people, forget it now because it doesn't happen that way. Only down in the swamp does it happen that way. And that's getting cleaned out a bit at a time. It's going to take years to do it. You know what I was just talking about before I told you the story of Dawson Trotman? I was saying it costs something to care. Dawson Trotman dared to care. And sometimes it may even cost you, Mr. Trotman, your life. Oh, I wouldn't want to go that far. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 25. He said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will find it. Those are awesome words. Dawson Trotman cared. Time magazine had it right. He always was lifting somebody else up. Sadly, our first conclusion, and I don't like to start this way, but we're gonna get, it's going to get better, is that there are many people in the world who really don't care anything at all about what happens or what happens in the world or what happens to others or what happens to them or what happens. Loving and caring. So my teaching point number two is whenever we are uncaring, we play into the hands of evil. Some of you are also familiar with C.S. Lewis. In his classic, Screwtape Letters, he writes about, that style of writing is so phenomenal. He writes about a conversation between Satan and his nephew, Wormwood, and Wormwood was really a, a devil in training. He was like an apprentice. And what, he what Satan wrote to Wormwood was something like this. Now, your task and your assignment, Christians, listen, please, is not to go out and make bad people. I'll take care of that. I'll supply the world with an abundant number of evil people to do evil things. And I think we have an abundant number, don't we, in the world? Yeah. But what I want you to do, Wormwood, is cause good people to do nothing. That's all you have to do. Just make all your people comfortable. Cause them be, to be content with things as they are. And if they ever begin to think seriously about anything of great importance, then get them back 
to think instead about what they're going to eat at their next meal or where they're going to go or what they're going to do next cause them to worry about their digestive system and their schedule and their calendar and their possessions, etc. Here's what he said. Get their attention off of whatever is important and keep them comfortable. You just keep good men doing nothing and I'll supply the world with adequate numbers of evil men. I, I, I read that over again. I've read it a couple times now just in the last week. And I wrote this down and put a little highlighter beside highlight. Squiggly marks, so I'd be sure to say it. When I consider that conversation, I want to say this to you. Wormwood has done a remarkably good job, hasn't he? Hasn't he? Yeah. Wasn't it Edmund Burke who said, the only thing that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing? No. That really... That really fits C.S. Lewis's description in, in screw tape letters. Isn't that all that it, that it's that it's ever that it ever takes? Huh? One of my all-time heroes of history. And I can't stand here and say I have many. I have some that I admire. But this man is it's more than admiration. He is probably my all-time number one hero. William Wilberforce was a member of the English Parliament. In the late 1700s, he vigorously crusaded against slavery in Great Britain. In fact, in the late 1780s, he authored and presented a bill before the British Parliament that would have made it unlawful for Englishmen to sell slaves to the brand new nation known as the United States of America. I commend to your time and, and interest a movie entitled Amazing Grace. I know a lot of people go to that and think, oh, this is going to be the story of John Newton and Amazing Grace. The only time you see John Newton is early on in the movie when he's scrubbing the floor and then a little bit later. And you have to know John Newton, the, the ugliness of John Newton's history to understand why he was such a great, uh, a great mentor to Wilberforce and to William Pitt and, 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 and why he, he, he wrote that poem that later became a song that a few people know. So it's called, I think it's called Amazing Grace. That's why the movie's called Amazing Grace. Wilberforce presented his bill to the Parliament twice. It was tabled both times before any action was taken, and actually in our modern system here in the, in the, uh, in the Constitutional Republic that we live in, it would, be, it would have been called indefinitely postponed, which means it, it's dead in the water. It doesn't have a chance, and it won't be voted on again, not during that session of the Parliament. Third occasion, he had worked so hard that he was convinced he finally had more than enough votes for his bill to pass. And now this is a few years beyond 1789. And on that night that it came up for a vote, 
A comic opera pre was premiering in London, and 12 members of parliament who actually supported Wilberforce's bill went to the opera instead of to their place in parliament, and the very time they were applauding the new opera, the vote was taken, and the bill was defeated 74 to 70, and that slave trade continued in Great Britain. I wonder how much the history of our nation was affected and how much misery occurred and how many suffered because 12 men went to the opera instead of taking care of their responsibilities, which they had been elected to do. Eventually, after more than 18 years, the bill was finally passed to be enacted And then afterwards, it meant the end of slavery, human slavery and the slave trade in Great Britain, which was, which was the beginning of the end of slavery and the beginning of civil rights as we know them today here in our own country. It didn't start here, friends. It started in Great Britain under William Wilberforce and William Pitt, who later became prime minister. We have all kinds of mixes going on now in our world. We have all kinds of politically correct groups that you can't mention, you can't, uh, you, you, you can't criticize, uh, you can't expose. You got, let, me, let me tell you something about this whole thing. As terrible as it is, in its radical form, the most radical form, I want to just stand and tell you this, and I want you to believe what I'm saying. Our greatest threat in our nation is not radical Islam. Our, and it's a threat, but that's not our greatest threat. I'm convinced that our greatest threat arises from good men and women who are children of God but who are insensitive to the needs of others and do nothing about those needs. You see, for us to be uncaring is to play into the hands of evil. Satan was right when he wrote to Wormwood, said, I'll look after the evil people. You keep the good people doing nothing. But here's the better news. Loving and caring. There are good and there are caring people in this world. This is positive. We need to remember that. Sometimes you just think like the world, people, it's funny today the words people use, Armageddon, end of the world, like, no, no, those are Bible theological truths. You need to know a little bit about what those mean before you use those terms. But for some people, they just seem to forget that there's also some good in the world. And we need to remember that. Have you ever heard of a man by the name, I'll put it on the screen for you, 
of Henri Dunant. He was born in 1828 in Switzerland. His parents were unbelievably wealthy. We would say about Henri Dunant that he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak. Right. He could have lived his whole life in lazy luxury. Yet Dunant was a kind and caring young man who had made a habit of visiting sick people and helping those who were poor and unfortunate. And it wasn't hard for him to find someone that was less fortunate in life than he. And as a young man, he established an organization in Switzerland and he called it the Young Men's Christian Union. And it was designed to help teenage boys. And it did a great work in his home country and then further afield. When Henri became an adult, he went into business on his own. He did very, very well. And he became very well known in Europe. And one day, he secured an appointment with Napoleon III, by the way, whose armies at that time were at war in Italy. So do not travel to Italy in 1809 to meet with Napoleon III. On the way, he passed the latest battlefield. And he saw, and he stood by, and he heard the atrocities of war. He wrote that he literally looked at bayonets and guns that were rusting in the mud. It's estimated that he saw bodies of some 40,000 soldiers. Most of them were dead, some of them still barely alive. He heard their cries of agony and pain. Some were cursing as they breathed their last breath of life. And Henri Dunant could not turn away from that. So he went to the nearest town. He persuaded the townspeople to turn the local church into a first aid station. And he persuaded citizens to help him. And they did come by the hundreds. And they, they took stretchers and they went out into the battlefield. And they brought back the wounded, the hurt, Dunant finally went home to Switzerland, but he couldn't forget what he had experienced. So he started writing to the head of this nation and the head of another nation and the head of that nation and the head of another, uh, most all in the European uh, community, to all the influential people in the world that he knew and to other people, too, that were influential that he didn't know. Finally, one day in Geneva, Switzerland, to an international gathering on August the 22nd, 1864, he presented a resolution that we know today as the first Geneva Convention. That was signed by 12 nations and kingdoms, granting, and here's what the, you've heard of the Geneva Convention, this is what it does. 
It grants immunity to doctors, nurses, medical staff, and ambulances so they can go into battlefield areas and bring back wounded and dying without, being fe without, fearing being, without fear of being shot at or, or ambushed or what have you. As a matter of fact, because of this action, Henri Dunant became a co-recipient of the first ever Nobel Peace Prize. And his group adopted as their symbol so that every combatant on every battlefield of the world would recognize it, a red cross on a white background. And today, wherever there are floods, and wherever there are fires, and wherever there are tornadoes, and wherever there are famines, and wherever there is war and pestilence, there is the Red Cross. You knew about the Red Cross. But did you know that it all started because Henri Dunant could not turn his back on the misery that he saw? He just couldn't pass by without trying to do something about it. And history someday, I firmly believe, is going to say a similar thing about a man that may be more familiar to you, a man by the name of Franklin Graham and his worldwide relief organization called Samaritan's Purse. And I want to say from a personal standpoint, there are many, many, many good, loving, caring, and faithful people right here in this building today for whom I offer a huge thank you and an ever larger note of praise to our Lord. Thank you for every loving and caring person that's within this building or on this property or affixed to this ministry. I praise God for you and I thank you from the depths of my heart. You say, some of these stories are so heartening. Oh, I read that, I heard that story of Henri Dunant and I was so heartened. Or I read some of those other stories and I was so disheartened. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you what the word encourage means. En curo means to put heart into. And when you go out in life and you leave these doors today, I want you to start picking on people. I want you to develop your hit list. People you know, people you love, and people who could stand a word of encouragement. If you have to scratch your head and really close your eyes and squint and think really, really hard, you're badly out of practice. And you need to get back in the game. We need to be encouraging. What does that mean? to put heart into the other person, to bring heart to them. Heart, courage, stamina, 
maybe joy, whatever it is, be an encouragement and an encourager. Some of us go along in life, oh, I'm discouraged. Why doesn't somebody encourage me? Why don't I ever get any encouragement? Go encourage somebody. Here's my point. I started with this and it was so long ago you forgot it. If we are children of God and if we claim to follow Jesus, when we see a need, we will do something. Why? There's no choice here. Because we must be loving and caring Christians. Matter of fact, I don't know if there's really any other kind of Christian. A lot of people today call themselves Christians. A lot of people today get, do what they have to do to call themselves a Christian, and that's it. That's, that's where they stop right there. And I want to say to you, I don't like to be tough on you. I don't like to walk all over you. But I'm going to say it anyway. And I want you to hear me. And I want every one of you here to take it personally. When I say, I love you. I love you. When somebody should ask us as a church, when somebody should ask you or ask me as Christians, when someone should ask us personally, well, is it nothing to you, all who pass by? We as Christians will respond, it is something to me. And I cared. You know why? Because he cares for me. And I love you. You know why? Because he first loved me. Loving and caring. Loving and caring, and it's all about caring. Hurry, band, they're watching you and not me. <laughs> we'll never get this down, never. It's always at that point, too. And it's all about caring, caring. Quietly, just quietly turn to somebody and say, it's all about caring. It's all about caring. No, just say it. That's, they won't hit you. Why did you do that? Because it's all about caring. 